morning and welcome to Jew in the City Speaks with your host, Allison Josephs, also known as Jew in the City. For Mental Health Awareness Month, we've been trying to discuss different issues that come up, not just in the world at large in terms of mental health, but what specifically the issues that we're looking at in the Orthodox Jewish community. Now, the truth is that anything that happens in the world at large also happens in the Jewish community because, uh, surprise, surprise, although Hollywood may not show this, we are humans too. Um, but the thing is that um, when we talk about mental health issues in the Orthodox community, there are different things we can bring in. We can talk about what culturally makes us different, that um, makes mental health issues maybe more challenging in certain ways or more hidden in certain ways. Um, or just as unique to our community, what total can we look to uh, to get healthy? Um, and really, at the end of the day, uh, to be a healthy person, both physically and mentally, is a Jewish idea. We have to get the best information out there. We have to work on, on healing and prevention. Um, and that's why uh, this type of information is so important. So I'm going to bring to you today uh, two uh, incredible leaders in the field. We have with us Dr. Michael Salomon, um, who is a psychologist, wrote a book on abuse in the Orthodox Jewish community. And we have with us also Rabbi Yankee Horowitz, um, who has been an advocate for years. I mean, really both of them have, but sort of from different perspectives, one's from the mental health side and one from the rabbinic side. So Dr. Salomon and Rabbi Horowitz, thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure. Pleasure, Pleasure to be here. Pleasure to be here. So the topic that I asked both of you to talk to us today about is something that I've been thinking a lot about recently. Um, I think it started first uh, because one of our Mako members a couple of years ago uh, brought me into uh, her own personal story of an emotional and a manipulator and abusive um, sort of educational uh, figure in her life. Who This person never laid a finger on her. And yet, literally decades later, uh, the abuse that uh, she experienced through this uh, educator uh, was so traumatic that as she described the incidents of humiliation and control, um, her body was literally shaking. Um, and so this kind of like flagged for me, like, what is this emotional abuse manipulation in terms of what are the red flags for this? I started noticing, you know, similar things in other leaders that exist. Thank God. I think most of the leadership that we have in our community um, are good people, hardworking, you know, coming from a good place. But um, about um, emotional abusers, manipulators, kind of cultish type of leaders is that they exist everywhere. And um, I think they can maybe have a special way of finding a foothold, uh, finding cover within our community because of our reverence towards leaders. Um, and so that's what I wanna to unpack today, both what the red flags are, what the dangers are, and how they may find refuge. Uh, in, you know, respect for leadership is a beautiful thing for the most part, unless the leader is problematic. So Dr. Salomon, if you could start us off, um, what are some red flags that, um, you know, we see as a pattern with these types of, you know, culture leaders that have this lavish following that maybe also have this, um, you know, side gig where they abuse, humiliate, manipulate. Well, I, I, I wouldn't call it a side gig. I think it's part of their, their approach to dealing with people. Um, ultimately, abusers are the same, whether or not they're emotional abusers, physical or sexual abusers. Essentially, they want to control other people. They lack empathy. They have their own goals in mind. They target certain individuals. 
and they groom them, but they don't just groom the individual that's targeted. They groom the family of the individual. They groom the community of the individual. They groom the entire organizational structure so that we get something along the lines of what in psychology we call institutional betrayal. The organization becomes their, their, their mouthpiece to protect them. So what do we have to watch out for? We have to watch out for the way they shame people. They, they humiliate individuals. They insult them. They create fear. They, they gaslight. Uh, all with the intent to control individuals for whatever gain that these controlling abuses want from these from their flock. Um, it could be money. It could be uh, a followship, a following that they want for their own egos. It could be any number of reasons that they they want this. But they're they're good at at somehow manipulating. It's interesting. There there are so many. Uh, terms to describe what happens to to certain individuals that when they belong to an organization. Psychology has a variety of terms. Um, one of the things that I, I like the best is when I when I'm studying these types of individuals is something I call pluralistic ignorance. It's not what I call it. It's what what the field calls it. Pluralistic ignorance. What is that? People join organizations. They want to be part of a community. They seem to believe that this works for them, but they see that something's not right. But they actually approach it with the attitude that they know that there's something wrong with what's going on here, but they still want to be part of the organization. So they tell themselves everybody else in this organization is a little bit off and they're they're kowtowing to this abusive leader, but I know better, so I'm not going to go along with this uh, abusive situation. It doesn't work. Because once they become part of that community, they become subject to the abuse. They become subject to being controlled. There's a whole pattern that goes on, and individuals don't necessarily see it because the first steps in getting abused is adjoining something and seeing that something's not right, but making those excuses. Other people get sucked <clears throat> in, but I won't. Fascinating. Um, you've been, I mean, you've been a child and you've done so much work for the in terms of you know flagging child sex um, and I think so much of what we talk about maybe because it's easier to pinpoint there's actually a point of contact between the abuser and the person um, and it's illegal and so there's you know the ability we follow the proper channels and go to the authorities and you know do the legal route um, there's a way to punish them um, where does this type of abuse like fall into Jewish law? Um, you know, what's the Isser? Um, and you know, what does our community do maybe because of our reverence as leaders? How do we possibly miss um, people for, for what they're worth? You know, I, I think it, uh, thank you, Allison. D Dr. Salman, that was that, that was really fascinating. Uh, that pluralist pluralistic ignorance is was just I got I, I got to study this a little bit. Thank you for the for the pointer. Um, you know, the way I see it, Allison, um, any person in any position of leadership has a responsibility to guide the people who turn to him for God, him or her for guidance, in a way that's best for them, and not best for him or her, and to to to. I believe 
promote independence and promote uh, growth in the people, not that devotion that really that really inhibits that. Um, you know, if you ask me to find the verse, the pasuk, and the Torah that that supports this, uh, you know, our chachamim, our sages, prepared that the, the Torah says that we shouldn't pl place a stumbling block. You shouldn't put a, a, a stumbling block in front of a blind person. Meaning if a person can't see and you put something in front of them, they'll trip on it, of course, which is a, a horribly cruel act. But our sages compare it to giving a person bad business advice because it might be good for you, let's say. And I, I think that ultimately all of this is so much about control, like you said, manipulation, um, and it, I think it, it's it's such an affront, to, it's such a terrible thing to do to people, where where you start playing these mind games, and and I think it, honestly, before people get into a situation is the easiest time to look at it, which is why I uh, tell people to look for these flags, look for these types of clues. I do workshops with, with, I used to do workshops with the parents in my yeshiva, and I did in the general community also on selecting a school, selecting a high school. And one of the things I would say is just, let's say it's, an, it's a grade school, look at it, the eighth graders, the seventh grade, middle, you know, the middle school kids. You're looking at a high school, look at the 11th and 12th graders, because that's what, quote unquote, the product is. If you see everybody acting the same way and dressing, I mean, dressing is, is universally, you know, some uh, schools have... Uh, a dress code, formal or informal. But if you see people doing exactly the same thing, they're, they're cutting off the corners of the kids. You know, it's like cookies. Cookies normally come out the way you mold them. If you see square cookies, somebody, somebody cut off the edges. So, you know, and, and even, even in, my, in my own professional life, mentoring, counseling, helping people, take that for example, picking a school in my own yeshiva, my grade school, I wouldn't meet with parents um, who asked me for a, to select a high school until they went to two open houses and vi personally visited two schools and spoke to the leadership of the school and took a look at the playground and the kids. Then they would come back and I would say, because I said, you own this. This is not my decision. I have no business picking a high school for your son. And I, I always did this with my students in every way. I do, I do child safety classes, I do parent classes. The first thing I say is I'm gonna, I'm gonna empower you, I'm gonna give you the tools to be able to do this. And one of the things that I, I often look at and encourage people to look at is what happens if you don't take that person's advice? Someone comes to me and asks me for advice. Someone asks Dr. Solomon for advice. We're emotionally healthy people. Somebody doesn't listen to our advice. It's your, it's your life, not mine. I, I wish you well. If it's a problem, come back. We'll talk about it. But it, it, I'm, I'm happiest when they're independent. And when you see, you, you actually see this in, in communal leaders. Again, I'm only from, mostly familiar with the, with the Orthodox Jewish world. It's, it's all about promoting independence and dissent, creating dissent. Our greatest sages encourage dissent. I mean, you look throughout the Torah, this is what we're supposed to do. If I can expand on that a little bit, again, as a, a psycho, social psychological term to, to describe some of what you're, you're saying, uh, it's called the authoritarian dynamic. And if I get it correctly, it's more along the lines of people feel 
some sort of a threat, moral threat or a, a lifestyle threat, they're more likely to shut down their independence and ask for leaders to make decisions for them. And that's where we get into trouble. That's exactly where people get into trouble because they make themselves vulnerable to a leadership that may have no morals, but presents themselves as being well-grounded and concerned for others. And that's where, not just in, in, in our religion, but I see this in other religions because I don't just practice within the firm community, although it's a large part of what I do. Uh, the research is also very abundant. It happens in any community. And in fact, if you look at this, most recent report about the uh, Southern Baptist Convention research that was released just on Monday this week. You see the same thing there. Individuals were looking for stronger moral leadership. So what they did was they shut down for 20 years any reports of abuse by their leaders. If I can, if I can give you the rabbinic, we're going back and forth because I think I think it's great that we're together. You know, we work together on so many things. Um, that, uh, Allison, thank you for, for bringing us together here again, because, you know, the, the research and the anecdotal and the rabbinic and the, 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 we should be working together. That's what we're supposed to do. And in That's fact, exactly right. this is another good example. When you see, when you see rabbinic people who discount medical advice, so you see medical advice who, who, who tell you not to listen to anyone else. It, it's, we're supposed to have this healthy relationship. But, but th th this, this, I this idea, I keep seeing this again and again and again, what, what you're describing, that they, they, they want to believe in something and in people and they turn a blind eye to everything. I'll tell you something else that I notice. Again, this is anecdotal. I, I'm curious if there's any research on this, doctor, is I find that when people make a, a lifestyle, significant lifestyle change, life choices, Let's say they make Aliyah, they go to Israel and they, they join, you know, a, a beautiful community there or, or they become Bali Tshuva, they become uh, religiously observant. They, so I, I've heard this, hundreds of parents have told this to me over the years. I asked them, like, why do you do this? Well, they told me to do it. What did, what did you think at the time? Well, I thought it was wrong, but they distrust their, their own radar they distrust their own systems that they had in place because they made this change and they respect these new people who know so much more torah than they do and who know so much more you know so so they they kind of park that intuitive side of them like away somewhere tucked away and don't follow their instincts when they feel something is wrong i, I could throw out i don't know how many examples anecdotes that support what you're saying i mean i just Two come to mind. One is uh, we've had many cases over the years in our practice, it's a group practice, not just me, of individuals who, as they say, flipped out. Um, and I don't think I have to explain what that means. Um, and, 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 and whoever their rabbi was told them to marry a certain person. They marry, they have three, four, five children, and suddenly re they realize this is not who they are. This marriage is not what they want to be in, and there's something wrong with the way they're leading their lives. Not that they want to give up on, on religion, but this is not what they are. And I say to people when they come to me before marriage that if you want rabbinic advice about who to marry, then you're not ready to get married. You have to learn 
what you want, who you are, and who you're ready to marry. And if you need to bounce ideas off of people, then maybe the person to bounce the idea off of is not your, your Rav from Yeshiva, but the Rav of your community, the one who knows your family, who knows where you come from, who has a broader understanding of who you are, and is not trying to get you maybe to join their particular way of life. Hmm. So I, I want to actually jump into sort of the need for the leader to have a certain outcome. That's an upcoming topic. I want to just clarify one thing that you sort of alluded to before, Dr. Solomon, but I want to really clarify this so it's crystal clear. What I've seen, what I understand for the, um, the sex abusers is that all of the love that they acquire and sort of the, the big personalities that they often have is really a cover uh, to be able to do um, the abuse that they do. And I think in the case of Kyan Walder, what came up, there were some questions out there, which was like, was anything sincere? Was any of that Torah, any of those insights sincere? Did that come from any like real or good place? Or was it all just a cover uh, to be able to do the acts of evil? I don't know if there's a definitive answer, but I'm pretty sure I heard people talk about, experts talk about that um, they're really lacking um, some empathy and some, you know, natural parts of their personalities that healthy people have, and it's all a cover. So can you clarify for this point, um, for both the sex abusers, and then I assume for the emotional manipulators and abusers, if we see these, you know, great amounts of inspiration and great acts of chesed, for me personally, um, one leader that personally humiliated me, um, that really kind of took my breath away with the interaction that we had, um, I thought that he was dangerous and I wasn't out there to start a war, but I would quietly mention my experience to people over the years, um, literalist to say, you know, I think this person may be dangerous, never laid a finger on me, but what would he, this person do around, you know, more vulnerable people? And the response was always, uh, but the Torah is so great. The inspiration is so tremendous. The acts are so beyond. We even did a poll on Twitter and I asked our Twitter followers um, if the leader, you know, spreads great information, does great acts of kindness, and also has an emotionally controlling and manipulative side, does the good outweigh the bad? And 33% said that the good outweighed the bad. So if you could clarify for us, um, are these acts of inspiration and, um, and kindness just a cover? Is there is there also a sincere side to this for the sex abuser, for the emotional abuser, or is this a way to get leeway to have room to do the quiet acts of evil? So the answer to that is yes and yes. Um, the research is not a, totally clear. Um, I just, again, want to clarify the fact from my perspective, what I've seen clinically, the research I've done and what's available in the outside research that I've, I've studied, um, it seems that most abusers, whether or not it's physical, sexual, or emotional, have the same lack of empathy. The question is, to what degree do they lack that empathy? And whether or not they themselves were abused in childhood, and this might be a result of it. Nobody can totally answer that question. And, and even if they had some abuse in their own childhood, that certainly doesn't justify what they're doing going forward. Um, the, the other part of this is, and maybe the, the more critical part of this is, um, 
again, we're talking about that authoritarian dynamic. They know that they want to be in control and they know how to do it. And so they target people that they think that they can control and they will do whatever they can to get those people sucked into their ego satisfying or physically satisfying or or sexually satisfying throws so that they can get what they want from them. Again, and it's I, hard to Yeah, sure, Rabbi. No, it's it's just it's just hard to know exactly uh what totally motivates them. Look, I, I don't really work that much with with abusers directly. Uh one of my colleagues does that. But what we have found is they are very good at justifying what they do. They always find excuses. In fact, there's an acronym in, in the literature. It's called DARVO. Um, this acronym basically tells you how these individuals operate. Uh, denial, for D, DARVO. Uh, uh, attack, they attack their victims. And then they reverse the victims and offenders, making the, the, their victims seem like they're the ones who started it. Uh, they all do that, whether or not it's physical, sexual, or emotional abuse. And, and, and by the way, sorry, yeah, Rabbi, I want to listen to you. <laughs> I like, I like, I like learning. Go ahead, finish, please. Thank you, thank you. Uh, just you mentioned uh, the, the the Walder situation. Uh, I'm in the process of finishing a documentary about sexual abuse, child sexual abuse, in in the Jewish world. Uh, we're doing it with an Israeli film company. We just signed a distribution agreement. Hopefully it'll be out. I don't know when. I don't know how these things operate. But um, we interviewed someone. In the end, they may not be in the film for a bunch of reasons. But we interviewed someone who was sucked in by Walder 17 years ago. Mm. And when she told her madricha in the seminary what was going on, her madricha said, well, everybody knows you need to stay away from him. Hmm. Why was nobody talking about it at that point? Hmm. Because because he had this persona, he had manipulated enough people in the community, and he was targeting individuals and got away with it because nobody was willing to recognize his abuse. Rabbi, I'm sorry. I no, no, please. Twice. What I wanted to say about what you said about uh, about the humiliation and about people who don't who who think differently, I found a correlation. So when when one of the following follower group speaks up, they pound them into the ground publicly. That the the people they humiliate, it's not always random. The people who show some signs of independence, they bop them over the head terribly. And and that serves as a as a as a message for everybody else to worry about that you know that 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 that, that negative interaction. So it's it, it's it, it's just horrible. And and you see, I, I keep hearing from people. Yeah, but they do good things. But they do good things. But they do good things. You know, I, 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 there's something else I want to point out. I've had this course, the great privilege of having three incredible mentors, Rabbeim, in my life. You know, Rabbi Ram Pam, Rabbi Pam was our Rebbe um, in, in Yeshiva and beyond. Yibadl Chaim Toivim, they should live and be well. Rabbi Shmuel Kamenetsky has been our Posek for, for 23 years in Project Yes and all my work. And lately, over the past five, seven years, I've had the great privilege of developing a deep relationship with Rabbi Shu Weiss in Israel. And they're all outstanding Tamid Chachamim scholars and incredibly refined human beings. Um, I never, 
ever heard a negative words from them about anybody. And if it was, it was just mild. And, and I always tell people, just when you watch your leaders, one of the things, judge negative to positive comments. Just, just, just check you know, what, what Gutman did the research on families. Just listen to negative comments. If you start, and I would tell my students, my eighth graders, I used to do finishing school with them the last year. I would teach them public speaking and creative writing, you know, to give them some skills. And I would tell them, I would sit down with them and I would say, listen, kids, you're going to go off and, and live life. You're always welcome to come back, but this is the way of the world. You're going to go on. How will you know if someone is a good leader for you? If that person makes you kinder and gentler and, and more sharing and a more decent person, you're on the right path. If the person makes you angry and, and, and speaks in angry tones, just run away, just run away. Come back to me if you want, if you have a question. So like, I would follow, I, my Rebbe Raf Palm told me something, you know, I, 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 wanna, I wanna balance this notion of listening to, to, to rabbinic advice with, with you know, being, being wary I think before you listen to someone's advice, you, you really should develop a deep relationship with the person and respect everything else about him, him or her. And my Rebbe told me something. I was on one, I did a total 180 as after he spoke to me. It took me a couple of days to process, but I, I, I respectfully argued with him about it. I, I said, Rebbe, you can't do this, Rebbe. It's not fair. And it, we had it, you'd be shocked if you heard the discussion. But, and he didn't bat an eyelash and he, he never like checked up with me. You spoke to him five years after, you know, a year later, he would remember exactly what you said and follow up and with care and with Rav Kamenetsky is the same, you know, that's what a Rebbe is. People should misunderstand people. Look, that doesn't mean there aren't good people out there who are rabbinic leaders. There are great people, but look for those attributes, selflessness, not caring about themselves, speaking in an uplifting manner. When they give rebuke, it's in a, it's in a very, very measured way where they're watching every word. And once you develop a relationship, then you, you, you start, um, you know, you, you, that, that's when you should, you know, be, be, be more comfortable listening and, and taking advice. So that uh, I would say, I'm sorry, Allison. I, I just, I would second that. I would, Third that, I would vote for that. You have to have a rabbi. Everybody needs some spiritual guidance, but you have to have someone who is grounded, understands you, and is not trying to manipulate you, but trying to get you to grow. Right. So I just, yesterday, brought something to mind about someone I was speaking with yesterday, um, who has named this person as their rabbi, their rav, the one they go to for everything, and it's someone I have a question about. So I said to this individual, if all you're hearing from this rabbi is musr, if that's all you're hearing, then there's something wrong in the relationship because there's more to life than just giving you musr. Got to give you encouragement. He's got to give you strength. He's got to give you a sense of self so that you can make some good independent decisions. You want a Torah source, Allison? Can I quickly jump in? A Torah source. Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, another person, I wasn't that close to him, but another person, blessed memory, who, who lived his life exactly like that. He says that, that if you look in the Torah, it says that, that Yaakov, uh, patriarch Jacob, he, when he left his father's home and he, he came to a well and there were some shepherds there, and he had a conversation with them. So he says, Achai, may I and Atem. That's how he opened the conversation. My brothers, where are you from? So 
<laughs> so Rabbi Yaakov asks the brothers, like, how did that, he didn't even know them. And, and you know, today in the vernacular, you hear the word brother like that. But what, so, so Yaakov was, was offended by their lack of, of diligence to their work. It was the middle of the day and the shepherds used to be out all day. And um, they were hanging out at the well in the middle of the day that they were stealing from their employer. They weren't giving him a full day's work. So he wanted to rebuke them. So first he has, I have to develop a relationship with them. I have to, I have to offer a kind word. Hello, my brothers, where are you from? Engage in a conversation. And then he gently tells them, you know, now is not the time for gathering the, for gathering the sheep. So that was, that's what Yaakov, I mean, it, that was, I, it was very impactful to me as a child hearing that from Eric Kamenetsky. We're out of airtime this week because this topic is just that important to really dig into. So tune in next week for part two of this important conversation.